Hello and welcome to The Polling Perspective, a podcast that gives you a behind-the-scenes look at public opinion polling and what's going on in politics today through a series of informal conversations between experts in the field. I'm your host, Doug Schwartz, and I've been directing the Quinnipiac University Poll since 1994. Today, we're going to talk to Joe Linsky, who is the co-founder and executive vice president of Edison Research. Over the next half hour or so, we talk about everything exit polls and what to expect on election night. I found this conversation to be very informative and enjoyable, and I hope you do too. Joe, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Doug. How are you doing? Pretty good. Good to see you. Good to see you. It's been a while. Yeah. Now, I'd like to at least put this out there for our listeners is that Joe and I are friends. Full disclosure, I have known Joe for a very long time to give you a sort of the Reader's Digest version of how we met when I started my job at CBS News Elections Survey Unit back in 1989. Yep. Joe was nice enough to give me his apartment as he was <laughs> departing the CBS News election and survey unit. Yes, I'd been there two years, worked through the 1988 election, and then I was headed back to grad school, at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. Now, one of the things that I've never asked you, and, I, and we've been friends all these years, is I don't know when you actually got the polling bug. And I don't know if we call it a polling bug. Was it an elections bug? Um, Like, when did it kick in for you? Because I know for me, it probably wasn't until sometime maybe my junior year in college that I really got into politics. Well, it it started mainly as a numbers bug and a politics bug combined. But when I went to Princeton, I actually majored in mechanical engineering. Wow. but I was always interested in politics. I interned as in my local congressman's local office when I was a high school senior. Um, my grandfather got me interested. He had two losing races for tax collector in his little town, and that got me interested. And I worked for, our, as I said, as an intern for our congressman uh, for a few months when I was a senior in high school. And then when I was at Princeton, even though I was majoring in mechanical engineering, I took six politics courses while I was there. So I always had interest in politics and mechanical engineering. I'd done statistics and computer programming. And one day at Princeton, one of my friends that worked at Career Services came to me and says, I have the perfect job for you. A flyer had come in from CBS. They were looking for someone to work as a statistical assistant in the election unit. You needed to know statistics, computer programming in this language that I don't know if anyone still uses anymore called APL, interest in politics. And it was indeed to me the perfect job. And I crafted a a resume and a cover letter, and I got invited in, and I got hired in 1987, and for two years worked there on the 1988 election, and that's that's how I got involved in polling. You know, another thing that I've sort of wondered is, so you left CBS, and now you've become, you know, this pretty much top I want to say elections guru, that you really run the exit polls that everybody talks about. Every two years, every four years, the exit polls are what everyone knows watching on television, reading in the newspaper. Everyone knows the exit polls. And you've sort of reached the top 
if you will, of our polling field to be running such an important institution. So between the time that we sort of overlapped for one month at CVS and then how did you get to rise to the top, if you will? Well, it's it's a circuitous path, but I, as I said, I went to grad school at the University of Pennsylvania Annenberg School for Communication. Then I kept consulting with the election unit. I worked for what was then the consortium, the exit poll consortium called Voter Research and Surveys in 1990 and 1992. Uh, then I worked as a research director for a media research company outside Philadelphia, and that's where I met my uh, current business partner, Larry Rosen, and he and I decided as two young kids, I was 29 and he was 32, and we decided we'd go off and start our own company. And that's when we started Edison Research in 1994. Yeah, I had background in exit polling. I still consulted with the um, uh, exit poll consortium and then later worked on decision teams for CBS and CNN. And we built a media research company at the same time. And then come 2003, we bid on the contract to take over the exit poll operation for the national election pool. And we've been doing the exit polls ever since. I get asked a lot of questions about pre-election polling that we do and what are some of the misconceptions about pre-election polling. And I um, and I've had some great guests on to talk about election polling. So I'm not going to talk to you about pre-election polling today. I'm so excited because I really want to talk to you about exit polls. You are the expert in exit polls. And I thought maybe a good place to start might be, you know, to talk about how you see some of the biggest distinctions between a pre-election poll and an exit poll. Well, the first thing is the exit poll has evolved over the years. When our former boss, Warren Matofsky, started exit polling for CBS in the 1960s, 95 plus percent of voters voted on election day, 95 plus percent of voters voted at a local precinct. And that's the way the exit polls were originally designed, to interview voters as they left the polling place on election day. Um, things have evolved over the years. Uh, there's been a greater use of by-mail voting and early in-person voting, and the exit poll has evolved over the years as well. We have a large contingent of interviewers on Election Day. We will be at over 700 uh, polling locations around the country interviewing Election Day voters, but we've already started interviewing early voters that are voting in person at early voting centers across the country. We will be at over 175 early voting locations around the country. And then starting next week, we will do telephone interviews of people who voted by mail. So uh, whether you participated in voting by mail, in person early, or in person on election day, you have a chance to be interviewed by us to be included in the exit poll. I've already learned something just by that, though. I didn't realize that you guys are doing the exit polling at the early voting locations. And is that something that you guys have always done? We've been doing it for the last few cycles. We did it in several states in 2018. We did it in five states in the 2020 primaries. Um, in states where there's large numbers of people voting in person before election day, we send out interviewers and, and interview those voters as soon as they've come out of the early voting location. In fact, many of you may have seen the long lines in places like Georgia 
North Carolina and Texas, and I can confirm there are long lines there because we have interviewers there interviewing people as uh, as they come out of those early voting centers right now. So right before we got on, our manager of Intervera Operations, Mark Bouchard, said, you know, maybe ask Joe how they're doing things differently because of COVID-19. And I thought, what a great question. And and now that you're telling me about, you know, you already are interviewing the voters outside the early voting locations, are you guys like doing extra stuff regarding physical distancing? How, how is that working? Yeah, I mean, in, in the primaries, we did 23 state primaries through the middle of March in the week leading up to March 17th, we actually pulled the plug on the exit polls we were going to do in person on election day in Florida, Illinois, and Arizona, and replaced them with telephone surveys of voters in those states. Because in that environment in the middle of March, we didn't know how in-person contact on election day would work. Um, starting in June and July, we did a, a bunch of tests in several state primaries in Georgia, New Jersey, Delaware, and Kentucky to see if we could put in the proper safety procedures so that voters would feel comfortable participating in the exit poll. So our interviewers wore masks, they wore gloves, they kept a safe distance. Instead of handing the questionnaires to the voters as they left the polling place, we left them on a table with hand sanitizer. Instead of using reusable pens, we now have golf pencils that are used once and thrown out. The ballot box is on the table. As soon as the voter fills out the questionnaire, they fold it up and put it in our ballot box so they have privacy and confidentiality for their results. And we found with those procedures, we maintained about the 40 to 45% response rate that we've historically had for in-person exit polling. Wow, that's exactly what I was going to ask you was, did you find a difference in your response rate? And I wasn't aware of what the response rate was. I didn't know it was 40 to 45 percent. Yeah, um, we've maintained typically 40 to 45 percent response rates. It's a little lower than when I started in 1988. Um, the response rates were more like 60 or 65 percent. So it's come down a little bit, but it hasn't decreased anywhere near as much as response rates by telephone or or even online are right now. I know, Doug, you're you're calling probably 10 times as many phone numbers as you used to to get the completes. And uh, a phone interview would die for a 40% response rate. You probably die to get a 10% response rate right now. Yeah, so no, you're, you're, about you're, you're calling is where we, we're able to maintain these relatively high response rates compared to other survey methods. Yeah, you know, that is an interesting observation about the, com the differences between you know, uh, an election poll, pre-election poll, and you're absolutely right. We would love to um, have a 40% uh, response rate, but, you know, even getting a 20% response rate uh, would, would be great. You're absolutely right. You know, it reminds me of how polling, you know, used to be before we had telephone, you know, the mid-1970s when telephone polling became the dominant way, and it used to be person-to-person, -person, right? Right. Um, the way Gallup and Roper used to do. And and I, I don't know what the figures are in terms of the response rates when they would go to people's homes and knock on their doors and have these person to person. Maybe you do. Do you? I would imagine it was a lot higher than than 50 percent. I, I would yeah. imagine. They I don't, great I don't have exact numbers either, but I would I'm sure they're out there. I'm sure they're well over 50 percent back then.
Yeah. You know, because what I wonder is, can we ever go back to in-person interviewing? Because you're right. I mean, the telephone polling response rates are very low. And, you know, I know there's been exploration of the online way of doing things. But sometimes I wonder about, you know, would it ever be feasible again to go back to person to person, given that your experience has been so positive with exit polls? Yeah. And over the years, we have done projects like that. Um, we haven't done any this year in the COVID environment. So I think we have to wait till we're we're through this environment. I mean, even the census had a cutback on their door-to-door stuff this year in the, the COVID environment. But once, hopefully, we're finally through uh, the pandemic and we can get back to some sort of normalcy, interviewing door-to-door um, is, is something that can be done. There's address-based sampling. I wanted to follow up, Joe, about exit polls and um, sort of some of the, the misconceptions um, especially on election night. You know, one of the things that I used to hear too much of about exit polls is that you know, they were used to solely make decisions on who's going to win. That that's why they're, you know, basically we have exit polls to tell us who's going to win. Now, I know that's not true, but I'd sort of like to you know, a lot, have you elaborate more on how exit polls should be used and in, then I guess what role um, they play in making a call. Yeah, exit polls are used mainly by the news organizations that sponsor them. And in this case, we're sponsored by the members of the national election pool. So that's ABC, CBS, CNN, and NBC. They're made for analysis so that people can, and analysts can look at the data, see how people vote by demographic groups, see what issues or qualities of the candidates were most important in their vote. One of the key findings from 2016's exit poll was how people who made their mind up in the last few days broke. And in several of the key states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, late deciders broke predominantly to Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. And that was one way we could explain that last minute movement to Donald Trump uh, using the exit poll. So it's more for analytic purposes, both on election night and historically, now that we have exit polls going back to the 70s that can be tracked. Anyone has a Roper Center archive uh, ID can go in and track exit polls back to 1972 through the archive. Um, We do use it to make projections in landslide races. We have enough information in races that are decided by 15, 20 plus points to make poll closing calls. But most of the races people are concerned about are very tight competitive races and exit polls are not used alone to make those projections. We collect all sorts of other data in addition to the exit poll to make projections for competitive races. We, we select sample precincts to represent a state and send reporters to get vote returns from individual precincts around the country. And we use that in our models. We also have reporters of every county uh, vote center to report data in on election day, and we're getting feeds, data feeds, and web information from state and county uh, election officials all over the country. So, a mixture of the exit poll data, the sample precinct data, and the actual county data is used in our models before we project a race. And an exit poll is a survey like any other survey, it has margin of error, and we will only project a race when we are 99.5% confident 
in the result. And most of the time, the margins of error in the exit poll don't allow us to project based on the exit poll, even the sample precincts. Um, if it's a really competitive race, we're going to have to wait until a majority of the votes are counted before we can project a winner, especially this year, because as, as you've seen in your survey, many more people are voting by mail, many more people are voting early in person, and we're seeing partisan differences between the by mail voters that are predominantly planning to vote for Joe Biden versus the election day voters who are telling us right now that they're planning to vote for Donald Trump. And until we have a representative set of results from each of those groups, we're not going to be able to make projections until a, a large amount of the vote is reported. So, Joe, talking more about the exit polls, tell me what are some of your biggest concerns as we head into election night? Well, we've already talked about one of the concerns is in the, the COVID environment, uh, will, will voters respond to our surveys like they have in the past. And at least in the testing we did this summer, they did. Um, but we'll have to see come November 3rd, what the environment is like, what people's fears are, and whether they'll still participate at that rate. So that's one thing. The other is just the election officials are stressed and uh, election operation systems are stressed by a large increase in by mail voting in a lot of these states. So we're expecting in many states, the time it takes to get votes reported is going to take longer than it has in previous elections. Some, some states have a handle on this. States that have been doing by mail voting uh, for decades, states like Colorado, Oregon, and Washington that have been 100% by mail voting for the last uh, few cycles, they've got procedures in place to handle this. Even, even a state like Florida, where more than two thirds of the vote will be cast before election day, they have procedures in place to process millions of uh, by mail and early votes relatively quickly on election night. But there are some states like New York and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin that haven't had this experience and don't have the procedures in place to process these ballots before election day by law. Some of these states can't even open the envelopes for by mail ballots until election day. And that's just going to slow down the process of, of reporting votes on election night. Yeah, I, I know that's a, an especially big concern among election watchers that Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, the three, probably the, the three states that are going to be the most closely watched on election night are the ones that the anticipation is that they're not going to be able to make a call on election night simply because they're not going to have processed all those mail ballots on election day, it's going to take them days. And if the race is close, then we could be having election week, election mm -hmm. month. I, I don't know. Well, and we've had that for years. I mean, many states take a while to process their ballots. And there are many states that allow by mail ballots to be counted, even if they arrive days after the election, as long as they're postmarked on election day. So Folks in Arizona, folks in California, folks in Washington have been used to uh, this process of ballots taking a long time to process. Um, famously, in 2018 in Arizona on election night, Martha McSally, the Republican, was leading that race. But once the remaining by mail ballots came in days later, um, Kirsten Sinema, the Democrat, pulled ahead and she ended up winning that race by several points. So we've seen this before. It's just 
we will be see, seeing it in very high profile races that could be determinative of who gets to 270 electoral votes on November 3rd. Would you say this is your most stressful election yet? Uh, more stuff has happened in 2020 than in my previous 32 years of doing this combined. I mean, it, it even started before COVID. Uh, the, the first event we covered was the Iowa caucuses. We did entrance polling there for the, the Democratic caucuses. And then usually what happens, we do our entrance poll, we release the results, and then we wait for the Iowa Democratic Party to release the actual results so we can compare how well we did with the entrance poll. And as many of you know, we waited and waited and waited, and it took uh, days for uh, the Democratic Party to put out results, and it took weeks for them to get to a result, and then another week for them to recount the result. And even by then, there was never any real satisfaction that anyone truly knew who won the Iowa caucuses. And all that happened pre-COVID. And as I said, as the primaries uh, were happening in March, we were dealing with uh, the spread of COVID and having to, to shut down travel uh, for our office. We went mainly virtual after the first two weeks in March. Um, and so trying to cover elections while in a virtual atmosphere was a new thing for us. And then primaries kept getting moved. Um, states kept moving their primaries or delaying their primaries or conducting a primary, but not releasing the results for six or seven days later. So there's just been more churn in the election system this year than I've observed in all my years combined. Yeah, it's and it's going to keep going for you. Huh? <laughs> election night's going to happen, and then it's still going to be there. I'm wondering, thinking of these final three weeks, about what's your sort of daily work life like? I'm thinking about, for example, questionnaire production. Are you, I'm imagining that you're having meetings with the networks and talking about which questions are going to be included. Talk a little bit about that process. Yeah, the, the questionnaires are written by a survey committee, and that um, consists of the polling directors of each of the four news organizations, so CBS, CNN, ABC, and NBC meet. Um, several times a week leading up to the election. We finalized the questionnaires in all the states where we're currently interviewing early voters. We will be finalizing the last batch of uh, state and national questionnaires next week. So that process has been ongoing and issues that seemed important in September may not have seemed as important as we got to October and vice versa. But I think, I think the committee's done a really good job of uh, anticipating the most important issues facing the country right now and asking questions about the process of voting. Um, so we'll have a lot of information about demographics, issues, and and voters' confidence in the election process based on the questionnaires that have been finalized so far. Um, the rest of my day is dealt with rehearsals. We've been rehearsing since, uh, since July to prepare for election night. Um, and these are rehearsals, transmission rehearsals. We create test data. We, we funnel it to the, the news organizations so they can test their graphic systems. They can test their decision teams that are looking at, at our data. They can uh, rehearse their magic walls or whatever other uh, graphics devices they, they use on election night. So there's been a long process of rehearsing. And then the other part is just keeping up with the information. You know, Now, day by day, we're getting reports of how many early votes have been cast, how many by mail votes have been mailed out and returned. And we use all that information in our models on election day to know how to properly weight 
our survey in the right proportion in terms of how voters uh, choose to vote this year. Wow, that's a lot. You know, one of the questions I've had, Joe, is when it comes to making a call on election night, uh, my understanding is that you guys make calls, but also the individual networks can make calls. How, how does that process work? Well, we're all looking at the same data, but each of the networks have their own decision teams um, filled with political analysts, statisticians, uh, academics. They have a wide background of experience and they're looking at our data and trying to make sure that the data makes sense, that it's leading to a, a projection that everyone can stand behind with 99.5% confidence. And each network has their own editorial process for making that decision. But we're all on the same conference bridge on election night talking with each other about that data because we all want to make sure the data is correct, that we all understand the data, and that the data is pointing in the right direction. So I think you're going to see this year even more patience and uh, a conservative approach to projecting races by everyone involved in the process this year. Uh, there's so many different moving parts, so many differences between how people are voting by mail and how people are voting in person that we're going to want to be supremely confident that we have representation of data from all modes of voting before we make projections in any of these close races. And, you know, the, the key word there is projection, and I, I don't want you to have to make a projection uh, um three weeks out at all. But what I'm thinking of is for your average election night viewer, what should they expect? I mean, I know as someone sitting on the couch at night, keeping track of what's going on, you know, I can see Georgia and I can see Florida by 11 o'clock. And should the average person only expect just the real clear blue states and red states, yeah, they'll be called. But anything that's a potential battleground, you're probably not going to know on election night or it'd be deep into the you know next morning. Or All this is going to be different state to state. As I said earlier, certain states have procedures in place to report their voting fairly quickly. Florida, we expect almost all their vote to be uh, reported that night. Um, North Carolina is going to report most of their vote that night. Even Texas will report most of their vote on election night. So there'll be certain states where you'll you'll see a lot of a lot of vote uh, that may or may not be called, but that'll be solely because of how close the race is, not because there's not sufficient data to call the race. It's these other states we we're talking about, like Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, that might be more dra uh, drawn out, and we may have to wait late into the evening, if not till the next day, depending on, on the margin there and depending on how much we know about how many votes were cast by mail, how many votes were cast on election day and how, how they're voting differently. Uh, so I, I can't tell you exactly what to expect <laughs> as you're mm -hmm. watching election night. I just know what we're looking for is we're going to be on our toes to make sure we know the most we can about what votes have been counted in states, what votes have not been counted, how many of them are outstanding. And with my conversations with the networks, they're gonna to try to tell that story as well on election night. They're not just gonna present 
the raw vote totals at the time, they're going to try to explain to viewers, okay, this is the election day vote that reported early in the state, but we're going to wait for hours, if not days, until the by mail vote comes in. Some states, it's the other way around. Right here, where I am in New Jersey, every every registered voter has been mailed a ballot, and those by mail ballots will actually be counted first on election night. And the voters that vote on election day or choose to go in and vote on election day are going to be voting with provisional ballots, and those ballots will not be counted for days. So different states are going to have different patterns of reporting results. And there'll be some states where election day vote that's uh, leaning towards Trump is going to report first, and then the by-mail vote leaning to Biden is going to come in later. And then there are other states that are going to be exactly the reverse. The, the by-mail vote will be reported shortly after poll closing. And that, based on all the pre-election polling and all the statistics we've seen so far, is going to skew Democratic. But then the election day vote, which is going to skew Republican and more towards Trump, may come in later. So make sure whatever source of information you're looking at on election night, that they're properly explaining what votes are in each state and what types of votes have not yet been, have not yet been counted. And you would expect that on all the major networks, that's going to be clearly explained. CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox, CNN, MSNBC, they'll be explaining that to viewers so that there are no misperceptions on election night where we know this information. Many states are very clear about this and some states are not as clear. So where we know that information will be communicated. The other change you will see on election night is we are gonna be reporting every vote total as a percent of expected vote reporting. We are making turnout estimates based on our best information in each state. And at a state level, a CD level and a county level, we're gonna be reporting uh, the share of the vote counted so far is a percent of the total expected vote. You know, previously, election results had been reported by percent of precincts reporting, and percent of precincts reporting is only an ad accurate reflection of the election day proportion that's in the by mail and early vote is is not usually reported in that uh, fashion. So to have a more accurate reflection of what proportion of vote has been counted all the news organizations this year are going to be reporting at every level the percent of expected vote in, and that should be a more accurate reflection of the share of vote counted and a more accurate reflection of the share of vote not yet counted. Wow, that is really cool. I had not heard that before. I had no idea. Um, and and how do you feel about that process? You feel like it's going, it's going to go well? We've been doing it at a state level for the last few cycles. And I think it gives a more accurate representation of where we are in the voting process or the vote counting process. Uh, we've done a lot of work this year to add the, those estimates at the county level and at the CD level. Again, people are going to have to understand these are estimates of expected vote, and those estimates will change over time as we get better information. Uh, but uh, I think it's a more accurate reflection of where we stand in the vote count process. One other thing that I've wondered about is that uh, a concern about leaking of early exit poll data. And I know that's the, um, at least with the networks, they're supposed to have um, a room where they're really, you know, they're isolated. Is, is that still the case? How, uh, in terms of preventing any leaking of the early exit poll data? Yeah, we established that in 2006. So there is a room. We used to call it the quarantine room. In this environment, we've 
changed the name to the embargo room. Uh, this quarantine has all sorts of other uh, uh, implications right now. Uh, but yes, there are only a handful of people from each organization that are allowed access to the exit poll data before 5 p.m. on election day. Uh, and since we've implemented those procedures in 2006, um, no exit poll information has been leaked before 5 p.m. on election day. So we're, we're getting near the close here, and I, I just wanted to sort of give you a, an opportunity if there was anything else you wanted to share with the listeners about what they should be thinking about for election day or for um, exit polls, I will um, let you sort of wrap us up. Well, I have seen exit polls uh, on election day for 32 years. And uh, as everyone knows, the initial exit poll results are partial data. It's either based on interviews we did before election day or interviews we did in the morning or in the afternoon. The final exit poll interviews aren't in until poll closing. And even then we will be adjusting our exit poll results as we get more information in terms of the share of vote that's cast by mail on election day and early voting. So take uh, the exit poll initial surveys that you see right at poll closing with a little grain of salt. It's a survey like any other survey. It doesn't have all the final information that we'll have later in terms of how many votes are counted by geographic region and by voting type. But once all that information is in and the final exit poll data is available, it is uh, an invaluable resource to compare uh, with previous elections in terms of the demographic trends over time, in terms of the issues that were most important in each election and what candidate qualities determined why people voted the way they voted. This was awesome, Joe. I could go on for hours, <laughs> and I'm sure you and I will at another time. Um, well, I look but forward to seeing you in person and hopefully at an APOR conference next year, if not sooner, we can get together, have a drink, and talk about surviving 2020. That would be awesome. I look forward to it, Joe. Thanks and good luck on election night. Same to you. Thank you for joining us on The Polling Perspective, a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio in partnership with the Quinnipiac University Poll. Our podcast is produced by David DeRoche, Samantha Stella, and Mark Bouchard. For more information on the poll, visit poll.qu.edu. For more information on our podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. Don't forget to connect with us on Twitter at QU Podcasts and at Quinnipiac Poll. I'm Doug Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us for our next episode.